ransomware gangs find fresh ways to make victims pay? And how can you prevent criminals from counterfeiting a digital currency? These stories and more in this week's ISMG's Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. Inventor Thomas Edison famously said that our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Perhaps a piece of advice that ransomware gangs have taken on board as they find novel ways to make ransomware victims pay up. Here's ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, who explains how ransomware gangs are continuing to innovate. With apologies to Jay-Z, getting hit with ransomware might make victims feel like they've got 99 problems, even if a decryptor ain't one. That's because ransomware-wielding gangs continue to find innovative new ways to pressure victims into paying. The problem for ransomware attackers has been fewer victims paying a ransom, in large part because they've had better defenses in place. Many victims are now able to simply wipe and restore systems. In response, starting late last year with the Maze Gang, attackers began exfiltrating data before crypto-locking systems, then threatening to leak that data unless victims paid. More than a dozen gangs now use variations on this tactic, which include charging victims to remove their name from a name and shame site, or to prevent stolen data from being leaked or auctioned, or in return for a promise that stolen data will get deleted. A growing number of organizations have admitted to paying ransomware attackers, and not because they needed a decryption tool. The University of Utah in July said it paid attackers a $457,000 ransom in return for a promise to delete stolen employee and student information. The same month, cloud-based customer relationship management software vendor Blackbaud said it did the same. Here's Bill Siegel, CEO of Coveware, a ransomware incident response firm. I can confidently say that there are a lot of cases where a victim of ransomware survives the encryption, is able to recover their data, but is then compelled to have to engage in an extortion uh, negotiation and potentially a payment of the threat actor because of the potential for uh, what they deem to be irreparable harm to their business if the information is leaked. And so they end up paying to prevent that. Siegel says he's hopeful that ransomware gangs' shakedown tactics are losing their efficacy as more organizations fall victim and there's less stigma or worries about brand reputation. But in the interim, he says one recurring theme from ransomware attacks is the extent to which attackers continue to use the same tactics to gain access to victims' networks. Principal among these is targeting remote desktop protocol, or RDP. He says any organization that wants to better defend itself against ransomware needs to get its RDP act together. The reason RDP continues to be so stubbornly there, and listen, I'd love to have new exciting you know, things to talk about, the latest and greatest vulnerabilities, but the reality is it just keeps being the number one way, and that's because it is so prevalent, and companies aren't closing it, and it's so cheap. So if an average ransomware attack results in $170,000 in a ransom payment, and getting the credentials to get into that server environment costs $20. You think about the profit. You think about the disequilibrium in this market as it relates to the cost of carrying these attacks out, the risk, 
and the potential payout, you realize this will just continue on until the cost to carrying out the attacks is lifted. So when we talk about ways to prevent this, we don't talk about it as you got to close this vulnerability or this CVE, or you got to buy this specific piece of software. It's think about making yourself expensive, right? Think about how to make it very costly and time consuming to get into your network because they can always get a little toehold. But if they have to spend four or five days and they don't make a lot of progress and they can't get the domain admin credentials and they're met with closed doors here and there, they will give up, right? The sad reality is that you know, the analogy of you, know, you don't have to outrun the bear, you have to outrun the person you're camping with is very much applicable in this space, right? There are so many targets that are not expensive to attack that when you make yourself just a little bit more marginally expensive, it's actually not a linear reduction in risk, it's an exponential reduction in risk because you have lifted yourself just that much further off the ground and there are so many other low-hanging targets that they're just not going to bother. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Continuing with the theme of creativity, counterfeiting has often been referred to as the world's second oldest profession. In the past, it was a rather laborious process which required large printing presses and the skill to craft intricate designs by hand into metal plates. However, with cash being slightly out of favor these days, does this old art work for digital currency? Well, this was the topic of discussion recently between ISMG's Director of Banking and Payments, Nick Holland, and Jim S. Cunha, Senior Vice President of Secure Payments and FinTech at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Nick posed the question to Jim, how do you prevent a digital currency from being replicated? Here's Jim's response. Well, you know, you, you gave some of the hints right there. If you think about the $100 bill, there's a lot of technology in that. There's a lot of work that goes into design, into testing to see, can we actually build something that's hard probably can never say impossible, but hard to create uh, fraudulent transactions. So it's really about design, design, testing. But as you well know, it's an arms race. You know, this is where the bad guys are really smart and there's no such thing as designing it and you're done. You have to continually be updating it to make sure that what you're doing is as foolproof as possible or counterfeit proof as possible. So it's design, uh, testing, and then continually doing that. So if you think about Bitcoin, the way Bitcoin works is they have to design in uh, something that solves what's called the double spend problem. If you have electronic money, what stops you from sending it to 10 different people? So they have to design in a way to make sure that you can only give your money to one and only one person, and you can't do that twice. So we have to think about the double spend problem just to make sure that John Q public doesn't spend it five times. But then if you have a central bank digital currency, especially one in a, a civilized country, it'll be attacked. It will be you know, a source of huge attacks. So you have to think about uh, all sorts of bad guys that are trying to do it, either disruption or counterfeit or you know, even you know, theft, et cetera. So it's a, a huge issue. I don't have the answer yet because we're not that far along, but there are a lot of good examples out there today in electronic systems that move you know, trillions of dollars already. And right. so this would be an electronic system moving trillions of dollars. The difference is, and you hear this about some of the new faster payment systems that are coming out, when you move it, it's, it's settled, it's done. It's not like it can't be reversed. The intent is it would have final settlement near immediately. So it just makes it harder to say, how do you do it immediately versus 
say, I can call up my bank and say, I never made that credit card transaction and then reverse it. So you don't have that, that, that luxury. So we have a lot of good examples about systems that have great designs. Uh, and then we have to roll in policy on top of that as far as how do we keep it safe from the bad guys. It's fascinating. I, mean, I suppose there is precedent as well. I mean, Bitcoin has been around and there is, it is still a finite amount of Bitcoin. It's not going to be, you know, it's always going to be 21 million Bitcoin. 21 million, that's it. If you think about Bitcoin, I don't know what the figure is, but there's been a lot of theft of Bitcoins. I heard some figure like 10% of all Bitcoin has been lost or stolen, but Bitcoin itself hasn't been hacked. You know, the old fashioned way, they break in and steal someone's keys either from an organization holding them off the person's own computer or, you know, however they store their key. So, you know, there are systems out there that have proven that they are not attackable or they create incentives such that it costs too much money to try to attack it. It's just right. not worth it. They're cheap because the bad guys are going to go after the easier targets. And so, as they say, you don't have to be, you don't have to outrun the cheetah, you have to outrun everybody else. <laughs> so it's the same That's thing. Right. That's right. Uh, have some burger right. meat in your pockets. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it is a, hu a huge issue. Like I said, you're never done. As you know, today with frauds and payments, you spend a lot of time thinking about mm -hmm. that. Whatever you do, the bad guys are going to now use some new technology, probably the same technology you're using to beat you. Mm -hmm. So it'll be no different. And finally, a new draft consumer privacy framework for health data was recently issued by the eHealth Initiative and the Center for Democracy and Technology that addresses gaps in legal protections for consumer health data falling outside of HIPAA's regulatory umbrella. To investigate more on the topic, Marion Kolbesok-McGee, executive editor of ISNG's Healthcare Info Security site, interviewed Jennifer Kovic-Bordenek, CEO of eHealth Initiative and Foundation, a nonprofit health IT advocacy and research group. Here is Jennifer summarizing the key highlights and privacy issues that the framework addresses. So there's a lot of pieces to it. If I was going to just kind of give you the highlights of it, I guess what I would say is this framework actually covers consumers regardless of what type of organization or what type of data is being held by the organization. So there are um, no gaps in coverage. So it's really a wraparound protection for consumers regardless of the format or the entity that holds it. The other thing that it does is it categorically prohibits any use of health data that consumers don't ask for or expect. So what that means is the company asks, um, is helping you track maybe um, your ancestors online. It can't turn around then and use that data for something completely different, like marketing drugs to you. It has to be used for what you expect it to be used for. And then finally, um, it limits the amount of consumer health information that can be collected, disclosed, or used to only what is necessary to provide that product or feature that you've requested. So for example, if a company is selling you a wearable device, they can't then collect data about what medications you're taking because it's not, you don't need that to, to basically get that device. So it really has to be restricted to um, whatever's necessary to provide that product or feature to you that you wanted originally. So what sorts of gaps in the protection of consumer data that fall outside of HIPAA's umbrella does this framework seek to address? You mentioned you know, websites like you know, Ancestry types of sites. What sorts of other data? So one of the reasons that we came up with this is because there is really no national privacy law right now. And there are a lot of issues right now with state laws, 
and different organizations have come out with frameworks. A lot of models revolve around this whole idea of notice and consent, meaning a lot of the current requirements basically require a company to tell consumers what they're going to do with their data, and then consumers can click that ever-popular I accept button. <laughs> and the model basically goes beyond that. This is beyond just a consent model. Our approach, I think, is much more stringent than these other frameworks and current legal standards because we really think that health data really warrants extra protection. So what our um, draft does is really it's actually very consistent with some of the protections found in the GDPR and the CCPA, which is the California law. And it complements, I think, other frameworks that are out there right now. There are a lot of organizations like the Karen Alliance, um, the Network Advertising Initiative, and this also, I think, builds on and complements the FTC best practices for mobile health app developers. So we're really trying to just go beyond what is currently there and make it more stringent. That's it from ISMG's Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.